Hi, friends, and welcome to All Things Relatable, a place where stories are shared. It's hard to put a value on a story because the lasting effects it can have are often priceless. An individual's story has the potential to impact our lives in tremendous ways. My hope for you in joining me today is that this episode resonates with you and that you leave enlightened, ignited, and inspired because it only takes one moment to spark a change and leave an everlasting effect. Hey friends, I want to start this podcast with a quote that I recently found in my quest to find the right words to describe the superheroes that are living all over the world. You might know one of them, be related to one, maybe you've had an encounter with one, or maybe you are one of them. The superheroes I'm talking about are nurses. So here's the quote that I found that I wanted to share. Being a nurse isn't about grades. It's about being who we are. No book can teach you how to cry with a patient. No class can teach you how to tell a family that their parents have died or are dying. No professor can teach you how to find dignity in giving someone a bed bath. A nurse is not about the pills or the charting. It's about being able to love people when they're at their weakest moments. My next guest, Michelle, has always had a desire to help. From the early age of eight, back when her grandma would bring her to the hospital after school where her mom worked as a lab tech. And back then, if Michelle finished all her homework and her mom was still working, then she got to sit in the back and hold the newborn babies. So when Michelle grew up, she knew what she wanted to do. She wanted to be a nurse. So she went to nursing school and hated every single minute of it. Two weeks before she was supposed to finish, she almost quit. But her mother, who never got to finish school because of a death in the family, would absolutely not let that happen. So Michelle finished those dreadful final two weeks. And once she was into her career, she loved it. Michelle is now also a leadership development coach and consultant who is passionate about helping organizations build a culture that values human connections more than bottom lines, creating environments where people never want to leave. What I believe to be true is that people no longer are tolerating toxic work environments and leaving careers that they love just because of the environment and not actually because of the tasks. So it's not surprising to me that Michelle is branching out into this new role because she has been taking care of people from such a young age, starting with those babies at eight and through her nursing career. So it makes so much sense that she's now helping organizations take care of their people. Hey, Michelle, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much. I don't know. I don't even know what to say. I feel like you can just stop the podcast now and and we're good. I'm, I'm almost <laughs> crying and I haven't even said anything yet. So thank you. That was amazing. Well, thank you. Oh my gosh. I just think, yeah, you can never, can never say enough good words about a nurse. And I truly believe they're superheroes, like having been in really, really hard situations, you know, with my, my little one in the hospital, when having to hand him off at five and a half months old, not knowing what's going to happen and like just trusting in her that she was going to take care of care of him and just the absolute, uh, love and care and that, that nurses just ooze from their, their souls is just like, you can't even put it into words. So no, I, I would agree with that. I think even with the, you know, current state of our healthcare system being less than wonderful, the people that are still there, even though they might be a little jaded and tired and, um, not happy with the system. They're there because of that love and the commitment to make sure that 
people get the care that they need. And that uh, when you trust us in that way, we're going to promise you that we're going to take the best care possible of your little one. So yeah, thank you again for that. That was really nice. Mm. Okay. So I'd love to take for you to take us back to those after school childhood memories <laughs> when you were hanging with your mom at the hospital. What was that like? Well, you know, my mom raised me as, as a single parent in the seventies. So that wasn't, you know, in hindsight now at almost 52 next month, I know that wasn't easy for her. And there was a lot of sacrifice, you know, I, we grew up not, um, with a lot, quite frankly, we, I mean, I guess by standards, we were, we were poor. Um, but I never knew that my mom was very rich in terms of the way she lived her life. She, her home was meticulous. And, uh, I think my cleaning freak tendencies come from that. You know, my mom was the kind of person who would take, you know, a shirt out of a closet after it hadn't been worn for a week and rewash it just because like she just, she would iron her sheets and just really meticulous. And I think that, you know, those are my, those are my home memories of just really having that pride of home and a really beautiful home that always felt safe and comfortable. But I really, really was really interested in, in her choice to become a lab technician. And when I got to go to the hospital, it was a kind of a scary place. I remember a lot. I remember it smelling a lot of that, you know, that weird alcohol smell that hospitals just, I remember that smell. And every time I go in a hospital now, it, it brings me right back to that place. But um, I always loved being able to go up and, and hold the babies. And of course you could never do that now, but back then it was an okay thing to do. And I'm just so grateful for that because I truly believe that had I not had that experience, I would not have likely gone into nursing. Okay. So you got to, I know how incredible <laughs> that back then, you know, the way that they let people snuggle on the babies and you could sneak back there. And it was, it was a lot different than it is now. So like, what was it for you when you were that young and you were just loving on these babies? Like, did you know, was there something inside you that was like, this is what like fills me up or, or this is what I want to do? Or was it just kind of something that you just did to, to pass the time that while you were there or? No, I mean, I used to, I remember just getting excited about, you know, I mean, who doesn't love to hold a newborn? Like, let's be real. They smell good and they're, they're just so snuggly. And even at eight, I think that, you know, you know, as a young girl, we have those maternal instincts Whether you know, I mean, eight is young, but I, I mean, I just, I think that those are there. Um, no, I think I just always knew, I don't know that I knew what like your quote unquote purpose was at eight. Like, I don't think I was thinking about it from that perspective. I just remember looking up to these nurses, like they were angels, you know, like you must be a superhero to be able to do this. Like I just was always in awe of what they were able to do. And back then, I mean, this is how far back I'm dating myself. They still wore all white nursing uniforms and they were still wearing the nursing caps with the two white stripes on them or the two black stripes. So they just looked like these forces to be reckoned with. And I just remember being in awe of them every time. And I thought, I want to be just like you. Like I, I, I want to be able to do this all and hang. And, and part of it was like, I want to be able to snuggle babies all day long. Like that was the eight, you know, the, the eight year old part of my brain that was coming out was like, oh, wouldn't it be great just to snuggle with a baby, not realizing how much work it is. But I think I did know intrinsically that I was going to be in some sort of helping profession because it just made me feel really good. Mm. So then you grew up with a single mom. 
So can you talk about like a little bit about what that was like? You said you didn't really know that you were poor the way that you grew up, the way that your mom kept her house. So uh, what was that like for you? Because obviously your mom was working in the lab and you were spending your time after school there with her. So, yeah, I mean, you know, my mom, so my mom lost her dad when she was 16. She's the baby of three girls and her two older sisters were getting married that year. So she really was in a position of needing to help my grandmother pay for two weddings and a funeral. And so she left school to be able to do that and help the family. And back then you could, you could get a really good job without actually having gone to formal education for it. You know, it was almost like, I guess, like an apprenticeship. I mean, now you could never do that. Now that came back to kind of kick her in the butt later in life because she never had her certification and her degree. So she never earned the same income that her colleagues were earning who were coming right out of university uh, later in years. But I mean, she was able to get a good paying job um, and, and get to work right away and learn a skill. So, um, you know, I, I think that my mom has just always been one of those people who just is naturally a hard worker. Like I just see that in her and everything she does. She's not, she doesn't shy away from things. She's incredibly independent, very stubborn. I mean, all the things I am and my grandmother was the same. So at least I know that I come by all those those traits, honestly, uh, we're kind of, uh, you know, a, a family of women that I think have just, um, you know, really been, if, if there's not a man around to do it, then you just figure it out on your own. And, and, you know, my mom never married. So she did teach me very kind of traditional seventies ways about you have to keep your house clean and you should always look nice. And that's how you attract a husband. And this is how, you know, cooking and cleaning. I mean, I remember as young as I can go back, maybe three or four, she would get a stool and I would stand on it and we would bake together. And she got me interested because she used to tell me if anyone remembers the Pillsbury Doughboy, when were you, you know, in the commercials mm-hmm. and he, and he, um, he giggles when you squeeze his belly. She would tell me that he was sitting at the back of the counter and that he would help her bake because I was too short. I couldn't see up over the countertop. And that's how she got me interested in baking. And I'd be like, well, where is he? So then I would get up on a stool and she's like, oh, he's magical. He's gone. But seems how you're here, like, let's bake together. So, I mean, she was just, you know, a really incredible mom. And I, and I, and I had a childhood that I think most kids would dream of having. Um, because I was an only child, she relied a lot on family. So my grandmother, um, I was incredibly close to my grandmother and her oldest sister uh, was fortunate enough to uh, not, um, she met a husband where she didn't have to work basically and and raised three children. She was a homemaker. And uh, in summers they had a, a camp that I would go out to. My mom would send me out to camp with them. And my, my cousin, Karen, who's two and a half years older than me, what only had two older brothers and she was very much a tomboy like summers where she refused to wear a shirt tomboy and my aunt would be running after her like you're not a boy put a shirt on uh and so because of that she beat me up because they were beating up on her so when somebody says to me oh you grew up as an only child like no 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 no, you don't understand i know sibling rivalry like i know what it's like to get in fights and to have to fight to keep your, your place. Um, and, and, you know, if you're, if you're the last one at the table, you're getting whatever's left over. So I certainly know what that's like. And again, I'm, I'm grateful for that because I really didn't feel like I was ever in a place of lack or want, despite the fact that we didn't really have a lot. My mom would always save up 
for the best thing that she could afford. And then she took incredible care of it. And to this day still has, I think the same bedroom set that she bought. My gosh, I don't know, probably before I was even born and it's an impeccable condition. That's just, you know, how she, how she lived her life. And I don't think it was until I was maybe nine or 10 when I realized how poor we were because it was Christmas time. And I remember we got a Christmas hamper and I just thought everybody got them. I thought, well, this is something Santa gives to everybody. And it was several years later that I realized that, well, no, we only got those because, you know, we were under a economic threshold where um, in our, in our area where we lived, it was like low income subsidized housing. And so everybody got them, which is why I thought that's what happened. And then it was, you know, years later that I realized that that wasn't the case, but I certainly never grew up feeling or knowing that I didn't have money, which I think is really important because we live in such a, you know, a time of, of our lives now where it's just, everything is replaceable and, you know, we buy and we throw out and we replace and, um, you know, I think it's always that scarcity hustle of looking at what everybody else has and trying to keep up with the Joneses. And the reality of it is, is that you can be as rich as you want to be, you know, it's, it's, it's more of, I think of a mindset as well. And that just, I just, I remember that when I, when I start to get kind of caught up in that sometimes. That is so good. Um, being rich, rich in your mindset or rich as rich as you want to be. And what a great thing to be brought up with. Like, that you don't need a lot. Like she had nice things, but she saved up and she had like, you know, not, there wasn't clutter everywhere, or like an abundance of stuff that you didn't, she saved up, got the really nice, whatever it was and took care of it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that is such a great, um, thing to be brought up with that. And that it is really, she didn't have a lot, but you never experienced that from her. Right. Cause you know, a lot of things that we take on from our parents. So she just kept carrying on, like you're getting the hampers. You don't have a lot of things, but it just sounds like your experiences, your, the camp, the baking with her, the spending time in the lab. It's like, that's really where we're really rich. I believe is when we are rich in experiences. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, it's funny because we're, some of the work that I do now, <clears throat> I was asked to speak on a podcast several months ago to moms. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people think about leadership being, you know, in the proverbial boardroom, but we're all leaders in all parts of our life. And I remember telling the story of kind of my childhood to these moms to say to them, you know, when you are so busy trying to be everything to your kids and you think you have to have these Pinterest worthy homes and you're saying no to things so that you can do these things that you think matter, your kids actually don't give a shit about. Like your kids don't care if you cook craft dinner three nights a week this week because it's too hot and you don't feel that cooking, you know, an amazing dinner. They're going to remember the dance party you had. They're going to remember the bake off. They're going to remember the pox popsicles running down their face and running in the grass with you in a sprinkler because it was a great summer night. Like those are the things they're going to remember, not the other things that I think sometimes as parents, we impose on ourselves and think they're important. And I'm grateful for that because I think my mom didn't have a lot of those luxuries to be able to kind of um, impose on herself. And so she just showed up as 
the best version she could be. And believe me, it wasn't easy. And my mom was incredibly strict too. So there was that like, no meant no, there was no negotiating to this day. I'm going to be 51. Like I said, and she can still give me a look across the room. And I'm like, you win. Like, (laughs) so I mean, there was also a little bit of a fear factor. I I do remember one time going out and um, asking her, I said, I never remember having a meltdown as a kid. I think we were out at a restaurant and some kid was just having like a five alarm meltdown. And I felt so bad for the parents because you could see they were horrified. I'm like this happens. Like it's just, it happens. And I remember saying to my mom, like, I don't ever remember doing that as a kid. Did, have I blocked out some trauma that I don't remember this? And she started laughing and she said, no, you just knew better. I'm like, well, that's rather judgy. And she said, yeah. well, no, I'm just saying, she said, as a single parent, no meant no. And you didn't question it because you knew you would get a spanking when we got home. Like that was just the end of it. And that's how you raised your kids in the seventies. Um, and I mean, it's kind of true. I mean, I only got two spankings my entire life and I still, to this day, remember both of them. And in hindsight, I kind of deserved them. Like I was being an ass. So, um, yeah, she was, she was strict and the fear, the fear was definitely there as well. So I think it's having a balance of the two. Hmm. Yeah. I can remember back to, uh, my childhood in the eighties and, uh, same thing. It was like, I don't know, I, I guess like parenting me to behave out of fear because when we go to the grocery store, my sister, my brother, and me, and we'd be squawking and fighting and wanting to put everything in the car. All that my mom said to us is like, do you want me to pull down your pants and give you a spanking in the middle of the supermarket? And we were so horrified, like in the back of our mind, we knew that she wouldn't do that, but just her threatening to do that. We're like, okay, we better smarten up here. So yeah, I definitely think, um, we, we swayed away from some things out of fear, definitely back then in that style of, of how our parents kept the order in our house too. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would necessarily have, you know, raised our kids exactly the same way. I mean, you know, I think that there are some more traditional um, child raising uh, strategies that are better, but, you know, I think back then we survived it and we're not awful human beings. So there's that to be said. Yeah, absolutely. So then you, you grew up and you went into nursing Mm -hmm. and you hated every minute of it. So tell us about the, the schooling or, or like, what about it that was? Yeah. So I was always really good in school. Like I, that's one thing I'd say, like, I, I think I mentioned to you before, like I'm a rule follower, which is great for a single parent. Like I was a kid who loved rules. I loved give me structure. I thrived in that kind of environment. So I always did really well in school because it had structure to it. And I didn't really have to study that much. I, And then I got to, even in high school, I mean, things, math was the only subject I ever remember really like thinking I'm not going to graduate high school because of math. Um, And uh, I, I got into, when I applied for nursing school in the town that I lived, they had, uh, they had two nursing schools that were really actually good. Like other people from across Canada were coming to them because the, the faculty was so good. So the competition was fierce. So the year I applied, they had, I think, over 700 applicants and 120 of us got in. 
Um, So I was lucky to even get in. And um, I thought this is amazing. Like I was all excited to go and you have to go get all, they give you this list. You have to go get your uniforms and all the things. I was like, oh, I'm a nursing nurse and this is all fun. Until I uh, got to midterms. And I remember the first exam I had was on oxygen, which sounds like we breathe it every day. How hard can that be? Oh, it's hard. Um, Concentrations and all of the things. And um, every week we would have these medication mini exams where you would have to do, uh, they they were called posology exams, which is basically you would have to do calculations of medication doses from like different um, measurements uh, and to try to get drip rates on IVs cracked so that they would test you. And if you didn't get a certain percentage, you failed. And if you failed too many of them, then they wouldn't let you kind of go forward. So there was just a lot of pressure. And I remember I bombed that first oxygen exam. I think I got like 35 or 37% on it. So I didn't just fail it. Like I, I bombed it. And it was my first twang of like, holy crap, I'm not going to get by on studying the night before anymore. Like, and now I have to really pull up my bootstraps. And it wasn't because of that, that I hated it. I just found that, um, I wasn't prepared, I think, for the recognition of all of the theory that goes behind the caring part for people. I just wanted to like take care of people. I didn't realize how much education and training is required to actually understand all of the body systems, go figure. Um, So it was just for me, like I hated it. We had anatomy and physiology labs where we were doing dissections on, you know, cadavers and things like that. And I just hated every, there's nothing like I honestly, if you were to ask me even now, I'm like, I I think probably going to parties at pubs on Friday nights were like the best part of my entire nursing experience. I, I just hated all of the theory of it. And by the time I got close to graduation, um, your last perceptorship is where they you put get in all of your hours you need to graduate. And so basically what happens is, is you're assigned to a, a specialty area and then you work full time until you get all of your hours that you need to graduate. And so and you're assigned to like a, a nurse uh, who is your perceptor. And uh I was hoping to go to gerontology, ironically, the field that I work in now, because in the hospital, I was like, well, you're just kind of pushing pills around and it's kind of easy. I can study for my nursing exams. It'll be, this'll be like a breeze just to work. Um, And I got placed in ICU. And in my program, you went to ICU for two reasons, either because they thought you weren't ready to graduate. And that would be the thing that kind of broke you or you were doing really great and uh, they thought you kind of deserved to kind of be there. And I didn't want to ask what of the two categories I was in to this day. I still have no idea, (laughs) but that's where I went. And, and I was horrified because my mom was still working in the same hospital that I was in as a nursing student and knew everybody. So they knew me as her daughter. And I was so horrified to make a mistake or do something wrong in fear that I would embarrass her, let her down and someone would tell her. So there was, you know, I think that, that piece of it too, that I hated um, because it was such a small town, there were only two hospitals and um, the, uh, the school that I was going to only worked in one of them. And it happened to be where my mom worked. So um, yeah, there was, you know, just that added pressure. So I'm, you know, I'm happy to say I obviously made it through 
through that portion, but two weeks before I graduated, I, my preceptor, um, she, I don't want to say she was unkind. I don't like to speak of people when they're not Rick. I always think, what would I say if this person was standing in front of me and really, really try to speak my truth in that way? I think she thought she was being kind to me by being hard on me to teach me as much as she could in the time we had together. And really, I was, I just thought she, I was too immature, I think, at that time to see the opportunity and just thought she was being a bitch, honestly, truth be told. Um, and you know, she, like she would between two and three, I remember every morning, uh, when, cause you worked 12 hour nights for the most part, I could not stay awake between two and three. I don't know what it is about my body, but it just wants to sleep. And she would give me like a pop quiz on the anatomy of the heart for no reason. And, and I was like, you're just evil. Like that's just where evil comes from that like nobody, no normal person does that to another human being. So I really couldn't embrace this as a learning opportunity. Um, until I remember two days before I graduated, I was ready to graduate. And I remember I was going to hang, a, um, an IV of potassium, a bag of potassium on a resident in ICU. And I know you can kill someone if you don't hang it properly and you run it too quickly. Um, and I remember saying to her, I need you to like, walk me through this. And she said to me, Michelle, you're going to be a nurse in two days. So she said, what would you do if I wasn't here right now? And I told her and she's like, now go do it. And, and I kind of looked at her again and my eyes started to water she said, you need to stop thinking like a student and start thinking like a nurse, because in two days, you're going to have the initials RN behind your name. And I'm not going to be here to help you. And you already know how to do this. So you need to just do it. And again, I thought she was being so mean, but it's so it's so funny because that has stuck with me for all of these years. Like I've never forgotten that. And I think in my leadership role, that's even helped me to say, sometimes you got to lean into the really hard stuff and stop thinking and stop playing small and just trust that you have what you need and you're not going to make a mistake. Um, so, you know, I am grateful, but at the time I didn't like her much and I thought she was quite mean. And it was because of that, that I just wanted to quit. And one morning I got up and I said to my mom, I'm not going. And she's like, Oh no, you are <laughs> like, you're getting up, get the uniform on you're going. And that was not, again, it was that look. Um, it was not up for negotiation. So thanks to her, I, I finished. You finished. Thank goodness for that look. So looking back now, I kind of, you said a few things that you kind of took away from it, but now that you're like so far ahead, can you look back and is there like something that really stands out about that experience of schooling and how hard it was or how it wasn't like this great memory that you look back on of like joy and happiness and excitement and, and all the things that maybe some people would wish it would be. Is there anything that really stands out about how that experience has helped you? I don't know, in your life today or moving forward that you've got from it? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, when things are hard, we have a natural inclination to like pull away from them, right? Like, no, we always just want to be in a state of feeling really good. So, you know, I think there's that is sometimes when you lean into the hard stuff and you kind of stick with it, you, you get the reward at the end. Um, 
you know, but that said, I think that sometimes we also have to listen to ourselves and say, if something doesn't feel right and it's off, maybe it's just off. And I think for me, why I knew the difference was because when we were nursing in the hospital, like actually taking our theory and applying in a clinical setting, I loved that part of it. That part I was all over. Um, and I think I would have been one of those people that probably would have been better going into like an, a trades or like an apprentice program where it was like, show me how to do it. And then I'll go do it. And I'll do it as long as you need to, before I can get a ticket or know that I've developed a competency and then I can, you know, progress. Like, I think I would have thrived in that kind of environment. It was just the sitting with a book in front of my face, even though I love reading and academic, I just was like, Ugh, I don't, this is not fun. I don't like this. So, I mean, I do think that I learned that sometimes you need to persevere to, to, to make your dreams happen, to get what you want. It, it's hard work. It takes work. It's not, not everything's going to come easy. Even if you hate it, there might be a rainbow at the end of that. So fight through if it's what you really want. I think it also made me realize that I got the opportunity to work in ICU. And then, you know, I did stay in there for a little bit longer um, afterwards as a nurse working on a maternity leave. But those skills helped me because in 2010, I went to Haiti and I was nursing in Haiti. And like, that's MacGyver nursing. If you've ever seen nursing, that's like pulling twigs and band-aids together to figure stuff out. So I think the, the work that I did in ICU and having to kind of think quick on my feet helped me uh, be able to take that and put it in that environment, which I never thought I would do. And again, that's just, you know, another skill and ability that nursing has brought to my life that's given me the opportunity to take what I know and apply it in those settings as well, which is amazing. And I'm super grateful for. Um, I love that. Um, bringing that point up that sometimes there's these skills or these situations that you're thrown into that you're like, what, you know, what good is this? What am I going to use this for? You just, you just never know. And then down the road, it's like, thank goodness. I have this skill that maybe I haven't used forever or had this experience at the time where you're like, this is so like random or whatever it is that in different areas and different times, you can draw on all of these, these skills. So you finished like, thank goodness your mother gave you that look, you finished, (laughs) you got into nursing and you loved it. Mm -hmm. So you're nursing are you nursing in the hospital at this time before you go to Haiti or where were you practicing? Yeah. So I was still living in the town that I was born and raised uh, in the primary hospital. So like I said, there were two hospitals, but this one was the acute care hospital. It was kind of the, um, I grew up in Ontario in Canada. So it was like Northwestern Ontario. So it was a hub for all smaller communities in the area would be um, flown in uh, to this hospital because it was a Um, I can't remember what they called it, but like a level A tier hospital where they had the capacity to take on like trauma and a lot of bigger things. And they did a lot of surgical intervention. So we saw a lot and we kind of saw the worst of the worst. Um, And so I worked there for a period of time. And then um, while I was uh, still in um, that town, uh, I had two girlfriends from high school that I was really close with. And one night when we went out for a few drinks and at this time I was the only one that was now working, like all of my friends were either still in university or trying to figure out what the hell they wanted to do with their life. 
And so they were envying me because here I am like working, quote unquote, and I've kind of got it together. And I'm envying them because I'm like, oh, God, I would just like to be in university. Like, you know, I was working night shifts and I couldn't go out with my friends and do some of the things that I wanted to do. And I mean, that's part of growing up and, you know, taking on responsibility. So I know we had gone out for drinks one night and they had talked about wanting to move to Ottawa. One of the girls was going to go to school at University of Ottawa. And um, the other girl was thinking about going to school in Carleton at university. So I said, well, can I like, can I move in? And so the three of us planned this adventure where we were going to uh, move away. And so I think I moved away like within maybe six months of graduating or less. And it was right at that time that the government decided to cut back on nursing positions, uh, that we had too many in the system, the government at the time. So it became an issue of if you didn't have five years of experience, you couldn't get a job, but you couldn't get a job because you didn't have five years of experience. Like it's that hamster wheel. So I ended up working in Ottawa in um, home care. I got a job working for a home care company where I was basically being a nurse and going into people's homes. And I did that for a bit and it was mostly like wound care and starting IVs and things like that. Um, nothing that really, I was like, I didn't go to nursing school for this. And again, you know, I think I mentioned this to you that I, um, and I think this is still a little bit true that at that time, if you weren't working in the hospital, people would say to you like, oh, you're not good enough of a nurse because you're not working in the hospital. You know, like it was this this class thing of only the best nurses were working in the hospital. And if you were an IC nurse, you were even in the hospital between your peers. If you were an IC nurse, you were like at the top of the food chain. You got to talk to the doctors by their first name. Um, like you had all these privileges that other nurses on the floors didn't have. So I kind of went from that to being looked sort of down on. And I think at that in my twenties, again, I, I wasn't mature enough to look at that and be like, but what I, what do I want? Like, what do I really want to be doing? What, what is it that I want to be doing to now with this, this degree that I can help people. So I got asked to, uh, start a program with a home care agency that I was working for, for palliative patients at home who wanted to die at home. So I started doing that. And what I didn't realize was that I'd say 80% of the patients I was caring for were my age. So at that time I would have been in my mid twenties and they were all dying of HIV and AIDS. Uh, so, cause that was kind of of that time. And, um, it was really, I grew up really, really quick. I mean, people always said, you know, I think because of my environment growing up, oh, you're so mature. My mom always felt awful about that. She was like, oh, I don't want her to be mature. Like, I just want her to be a kid. This is a time where I was like, oh, you just grew up. Like you grew up real quick. Cause when you're helping someone transition from this life to the next, and you're looking at yourself, I'm like, <laughs> you kind of get your shit together pretty quickly. So um, I did that for several years and really loved it, dare I say, because some people find it really odd when I say I love palliative care um, because you're around death almost every time you're nursing and people are like, oh my God, how can you love that? And the only response I can say is that when you are in a room with someone who's dying, it is probably the most intimate experience you will share with another human being. And to be present when they take their last breath is an honor. And I don't think it happens by chance that you are there at that time that it happens. 
Like, I really do think that you're kind of called into those positions to, to find those people for whatever reason I can offer something. And so much of what I did at that stage wasn't even about providing care to the person who was dying other than um, making sure they were comfortable and, you know, providing basic care. It was really more caring for the family. It was helping them know what was happening, why it was happening, what changes meant. I would start my shift often by going straight into the kitchen and turning on a coffee maker or making a pot of tea because half my shift would be counseling family members around like, okay, well, what are we going to see today? Like, where are we at? Um, and, and helping them prepare for that. So, um, and I think that's what parlayed me into wanting to work with seniors. I mean, I did work for seniors a little bit kind of transitionally in between, but it was never something that, um, I did full time. It was like casual work here and there I would pick up. Uh, but I just kept kind of getting drawn to that, um, to that. So it's, I think that's probably led me to, you know, ultimately working in long-term care and then getting my national certification in it. Wow. Oh my gosh. That like, Oh, pulls on every heartstring. I was like, so emotional, like thinking about like being in that situation where you have the honor to be in the rooms and that space and bring your energy. in. I mean, it's so beautiful that you get to share the last moments of the life on earth. And, and then for the family, like being there and, and providing the support and being there and, you know, their toughest moments of their lives. Like, how did you, I feel like some people just maybe have this superpower and can do it, but everybody's human. Cause if I feel like I would be bawling the whole <laughs> entire time. I would, I'm so emotional. I wouldn't be able to hold it together. The family would probably be hugging me, like seeing if I was okay. You know what I mean? Like, how do you like work in an environment like that? And I don't know if the word is like, hold it all together or like be that, like, that person for someone else, or like, how do you take care of your own emotions or, or if you're just in it, is it just something that is just like what you do? And it's just like a beautiful thing. And you, you appreciate it. Like how, how do you do it? I don't know. There's so many yeah. things there. That's such a great question. And I mean, I can only answer it from my experience because I'm sure it's different for everybody. And I think it's a lot of those things that you talked about. Like, you know, I think back, when I'm in that moment of helping someone transition, whether it's a young person or someone at the end of life, um, you know, I think some people would argue that if it's someone who has lived a full long life and they're in their eighties or nineties, that somehow it's quote unquote easier because they've lived this amazing life. And, um, for people who are younger, sometimes it's more traumatic or it's more emotional. And, and I wouldn't necessarily agree with that because I've seen some families at the very end of, um, you know, someone who's a hundred years old, who thought that they were going to be around forever and it's their parent. And at the end of the day, they're still a child that has just lost a parent and it doesn't make it any different if you're 50 or 60 or 90, like it's, it is, it's grief is grief. Um, and I think in that moment, there's a part of me that's able to just sort of like disassociate a little bit and be really present and uh, know that I'm kind of there to do a job and to help guide them and make sure that they have an experience that's not going to, it's not going to give them 
anything that they look back on and be like, oh, I wish that would have been different. Um, so I try to make sure that those things are really clear up front before we get there. Right. So I've like, I've had, um, and, and, and it depends. Sometimes people from different cultural backgrounds also have preferences after they've passed away. I had one resident who said to me, as soon as I die, open the window. Cause he believed his soul was going to go. And so had I not known that, and the family didn't tell me that that would have been something they would have hung on to like, Oh, his spirit never got a chance to go. Like, and they would have hung on to that. And that would have been the thing they remembered, not the beautiful four days leading up to that experience. So, I mean, I think part of that is, is really honoring that person's journey through it. So by the time they pass, it's really more, I can look at this and say, they're fine. Like their body was so tired. They're finally at peace. They've let go. Um, but do I get in my car and go home and cry? Yeah, for sure. I do because I'm an empathetic person too. I'm the person who will cry at a sad commercial. And my husband looks over at me and he's like, you're seriously crying again. Like he loves me for it. I'm like, dude, you signed up for this shit. Like don't even, and he knows that he's joking, but like, I can cry at the drop of a hat. So sometimes I'm even like, I don't know how I keep my shit together sometimes, but I think you just, there's just that little piece of you that knows it's not about my experience it's about their experience and and you can i think all of us have the ability to do that you know when you have a sick child and you're trying to be brave and not get them like we all rise to those occasions when we don't freak out but on the inside we're having a complete meltdown i think we all do that it just looks a little bit different when it's around supporting someone going through the the dying process uh, you know it, it it just looks different um so yeah i i mean i think that's the way I manage it, but I certainly know that, um, it can, it can be hard and it can be taxing. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I think, I, I think I noticed it more honestly, and this is might sound odd. Um, so we have, we had three dogs. We lost two, uh, we lost Brody, our oldest, who was 19, uh, two years ago. And then just in January of this past of this year, we lost our other dog pepper. And, um, I remember through both of those, my husband's first wife, who he got Brody with, and he was living with us at the time, couldn't be there. He got sick very quickly as both of our dogs did. And so I was on the phone with her while we're, you know, going through this process and telling her what's going on and saying like, do you want to get on like, like zoom or Facebook so that you can, you can be here in the room with us. And she was like, no, like, I'm just trying to navigate this dying experience for her our, our, my stepson was there who, you know, is 19 years old. And it, this kid is tough as nails and six, four, and he, he fell apart when he saw this dog. Cause it was his best friend, his whole life growing up. So, you know, you're trying to kind of manage this. And then I went home and kind of lost my shit afterwards. And same thing happened with our dog just in January. I mean, she died here at home with me in my arms and I talked her through the whole process in the vet I said, you don't even have to tell me she's gone. I felt her leave her body. Like I totally knew when she was gone. And I think you just, you learn how to do that in a way that seems graceful to other people, but you're just switching off a little switch in your brain that, you know, you can turn on later. Mm, that totally makes sense. So you got to spend the time with people who are at the end of their life. Was there any common theme, any like regrets, any final wishes or anything that would come up when you're spending like the last moments with these people? 
Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of people I'm may have, I, I mean, I, I have just because it's, it's what I do, but some people may have written Brony or re- read Brony Ware's books. She wrote a book um, several years ago called the uh, number one regret of the dying. And she interviewed a bunch of people who were um, dying and found out what their regret was. And um, the number one, and I kind of live my life this way. And, and it's part of the leadership approach that I have is that the number one regret that people had was that they were living the life that everyone else wanted for them, not the life they wanted for themselves. And while I will say that's certainly true, and I have seen that, and some people have told me that, um, the things that I, when I've had conversations with people at the end and I ask them those things, they've been, they've always said, time goes by so fast. And we don't take the time to just do the things that are fun enough, right? Like, you know, you hear people say afterwards when they've had loss, like say goodbye to your loved ones. Like it's the last day and live every day. Like it's your last day. And while I completely think that we should all live our lives that way, I feel like that's setting a standard that's so unreachable for most of us because the reality of it is that you just get caught up in your own shit. Like life is life and it's hard to live every day. Like you're holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Like it's just not realistic. Um, but I think that when you can look at the fact that time, we don't have an, an indefinite amount of time. Like we're only here for a limited amount of time, whether that's 20 years, 40 years, 80 years, a hundred years, your time is going to run up. So enjoy what you can do at each of those stages and each of those seasons of your life, because you're not getting that time back. Enjoy your babies when they're little, because you're not going to get that time back with them. Enjoy your twenties when you're partying and having fun with your friends and you're skinny, you're new bikini and you're having all the things because you're not going to get that time back. You know, um, like I think there's just different seasons of our life that what I took from that and the way I understood it is that it's not about living your whole life as though today is your last day. It's about living each of those seasons of your life to the best that you can and just enjoy it. So you can look back and be like, oh, I have, I got some good memories of that time in my life, right? There's going to be maybe some crappy ones too, but there's more good ones than not. And you can say, I had more fun and took, made more of an effort to have a good time than I got focused into all the other crap. And I think now at 50, I'm finally ready to hear that message in the truest sense of like becoming more who I think I've ever supposed to be than I ever have in my whole life. And part of that, I think is just, you do, you get, you get wiser as you get older and you, you give a shit about what people think about you a little less. Mm-hmm. I know. I feel like we all, as we grow up, some people get there young. I don't know. Some people, it takes longer. Some people into, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, some people even to their seventies yeah. that are like, Maybe, I guess maybe not everybody gets to that point, but there is an opportunity to get to that point where you really reflect and evaluate and think about like, who am I? Like, what makes me happy? What am I, um, want to be intentional about? Like, what do I want to add to my day? What, what can I let go of and not care about? Like, how can I show up more authentically? And I think at different points, there's an opportunity for, for us I know it took me into my, like, I don't know, mid thirties, maybe to get there when it was like, okay, let's, you know, I've always kind of dabbled into like 
into the self-development and evolution and, and all the things, but get to a point where you're like, okay, what, what is it? Let's strip things back and get there. So I think it is an, an opportunity to do that mm-hmm. at whatever point where, so that you can create these memories, have the fun, do the things that really, truly light you up and not your friends or your family or society. Like you said, a lot of people were living for other, other people and, and not their, their own life. Right. Well, and I think too, you know, and that's such a great point. And I love everything you said, because for me, it's about like, what are you waiting? Like, I guess where I sit now is kind of like, what are you waiting for? Like what time, if if it's not going to be now, when will it be? And if I say, I don't know, then why don't I just do it now? Cause maybe I won't get later. And I literally, like, I'm not having some sort of like existential conversation with myself when I have that. It's really like a legitimate question. Like, what are you waiting for? Um, You know, so like going to Haiti, I had always wanted to do that. I had never gone. And I finally had the opportunity. And I said no twice before finally, I was like, I'm going. Like, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to be brave and I'm going to do this. Last night, I was scrolling on Instagram because I was hot and trying to keep cool. And a feed came up for sound bathing. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I've always wanted to try that. There's a local place here in Vancouver. So I registered and I'm going to a sound bath session on Monday night at 7.30. And I'm hearing incredible things about it, like incredible things about sound bathing. So I'm like, well, that's kind of cool. What am I waiting for? I don't, I I just, I think I'm, I'm there now where I'm embracing more that it's not going to cause me financial hardship. And so what's the worst thing that can happen? I don't like it and I never go back. So it's an hour out of my life. At least I tried it and I have the experience. Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay. I want you to touch on um, Haiti. So you put off mm-hmm. Haiti for a couple of years and then you went at a time of mass destruction. So yeah. can you take us back to that time <clears throat> in your career when you set off to another country to help, like you said, can't remember you said sticks and something, I, whatever I think of like things just kind of thrown together. I'm like bubble gum and duct tape, like yeah. the way that it is. So what was your experience like in Haiti? Well, so, um, I was asked to go, uh, in 2010 and we were planning to go about eight months. I guess it was about an eight month prep. So basically the organization I was working with is Canadian based, they're non-denominational, Um, We basically go and work with orphanages that have children, but we teach, they call them mummies in a lot of the orphanages. They teach the mummies how to actually take care of the children. The orphanages that we particularly go to are those that have physical or developmentally delayed kids because in Haiti, 50% of the population believes in voodoo. And so those who believe in voodoo believe that you have been cursed. Basically, the mother's been cursed. The child's been cursed. You've you've done something wrong, which is why this child has been born this way. And so often the entire community will ostracize the mother and the child. And so a lot of these kids end up on the doorstep of orphanages, literally dropped off, which has happened twice when I've been in Haiti. The parent has literally like dropped them off and walked away. Um, You want to see tears. That's, That's the one and only time I've ever kind of like, completely lost my, my shit in Haiti was when that happened. Um, so, um, you know, you plan to go and, uh, you have to do all the fundraising for it. So you have all these fundraisers and you, uh, raise the money to go. You have to, because we use all local, um, like we stay in a guest house. We use all local Haitians to do everything. Our drivers are Haitian. Um, our security is Haitian. So, um, 
I think it was three days before we were re- getting ready to go, Hurricane Tomas started to come across. And they were like, well, we're not going. Like, we're not going to get there in time. Because at that time, Air Canada was only flying, I think, one flight a day in and out. And it was the only airline that was flying into Haiti. So they said, we, we're not going. And I I was just sobbing. I'm like, I have not planned for nine months, for three days before for this to go. And they said, well, we'll see what happens. Because if it doesn't shift, there's a chance we can still go. So it didn't. It didn't shift. And we ended up getting on and we got there and everything was fine. It's um, I've never felt heat like that in my entire life in humidity. That was the first thing I remember and the smell just, but, and now I love when I get off this, the plane now and I smell Haiti, I'm just like, oh, I'm out. it's so great. Um, and, uh, but I remember we had one day and it was literally the calm before the storm. Like when they say that literally, I no joke, that's what it was. It was the most beautiful day ever. And we were packing things up. You have to, I had to bring all my own medical gear. So I had 50 pound, a 50 pound bag of medical gear. That was my responsibility to truck around. Um, and then bags of things that I brought from Canada, like splints and things that we would use. Cause a lot of the work that we did were, was rehab focused. It wasn't actually like acute care nursing. I was the only nurse on the team. Most people were occupational therapists, physiotherapists, speech therapists. It was very rehab based. Uh, so we had all this other equipment. So we were planning all these bags for our first trip up into the mountains. And, uh, then the hurricane came that night. Well, there was a lot of, I mean, we were drinking a lot of beer because <laughs> we're Canadian and that's what you do when you're stuck in a guest house with 30 other people and you can't go anywhere. But I've also never felt more safe in my entire life because we were in a compound where we could have been taken advantage of in the middle of a hurricane. And we had three security guards who literally stood outside the door of our guest house to protect us in a hurricane. <laughs> like, I'm like, I'm, I, this person doesn't even know me. And it certainly wasn't for the money. They were just doing it because, you know, out of the goodness of their heart to do that. So um, the trip was amazing. Unfortunately, um, it was before I went is when they had the huge earthquake. And so um, that was, I think, probably why I was so upset was because we were really the focus of why we were going had now all of a sudden changed after the earthquake in January. We were all like, now we're going for a completely different reason. We're not just going to help these kids. We're going, this is like mass catastrophe. And then to be told that we couldn't go because of another storm coming in, these poor people that were already suffering and barely getting by would now have to, you know, rage this hurricane just broke my heart. So Um, I can tell you, I mean, I don't like to get too graphic because I know people who might be listening. I don't want to kind of re-traumatize anyone or trigger anyone. Um, but, uh, my first experience was difficult. I loved it. Um, but because we were there right after the earthquake had happened and then a hurricane while we were there, um, I mean, I was picking dead babies out of dumpsters and helping to pick people up off the side of the street that had been kind of pushed aside like garbage where pigs and garbage and stuff were because there was so much death 
than destruction that they just don't have the infrastructure and didn't know what else to do. Like literally this was not about people not having compassion and respect for life. It's like they didn't have any infrastructure to do anything different than they did. Um, And so that was heartbreaking for me to find a place in my brain. Like you see that level of poverty on TV and you kind of don't have a box for it. And then when you're actually living it in real life, all of a sudden your awareness is kind of that holy shit moment. Am I ever lucky that by I had nothing to do with the fact that I was great. Like I'm lucky enough that I was born to a mother in Canada and have all of the ability to live in this country while there are people literally in the world that are starving to death and living in squalor. And they know no different. Like the kids were happy because they don't know any different. Um, And, um, you know, but we did a lot of good work and I always try to focus on the work we do because the work is, amazing. And I learned, you know, how to do, do compa dancing with little kids and in, in orphanages. Um, I got to play with them. The bad thing was, is that halfway through our trip, or I think on day four of our trip, actually, we were there for 14 days, day four of our trip. I broke, I broke my left ankle. You don't want to break anything in a developing country right after an earthquake and a hurricane. It's not advisable. Um, I wasn't going to a hospital in Haiti. So, uh, I walked on it for 10 days. Uh, it <laughs> didn't, I was pretty sure it was broken cause I heard a pop, but it was still pointing in the right direction. So I was like, mm, I can wait bear on this. I think I'll be okay. And what happened was that I was carrying two medical bags over my shoulders down a rickety set of stairs because of the earthquake and one, and I hit a step that was sort of like off kilter and it threw me off balance and the bag started to come off my shoulders, which was in hindsight a blessing because when, you know, your natural inclination is to put your hands down when you're falling, I probably would have broken both my wrists, but because the bags fell off my shoulders, my hands actually went down on the wrist, but my ankle rolled and I heard a pop and I thought, I'm not sure that that's not a break, but I'm, I can point it. I can still wait there. So I walked on it for 10 days. It was the size of a football and it was black. So I would go swimming in the ocean every day and take Advil. And that would bring the swelling down enough that I could get my runner on and I would sleep in my runner. Um, and with my foot up against the wall to keep the swelling down so that I could walk on it the next day. And I remember when I came home, the orthopedic surgeon that I saw in hospital was like, what is wrong with you? Like, what do you mean you've been walking on this for 10 days? It's broken in two places. And I said, well, I was in Haiti. Like, would you go to a hospital in Haiti? And he said, well, no, but, and I said, well, I didn't have any choice. I was there. I wasn't coming home. Like this was a trip I'd been planning for. There was no coming home. That was just not an option. So I ended up having to have surgery three days later. And I have a eight inch plate and I think about nine screws in my left ankle. So that's my first memory of Haiti. Um, But subsequent ones were less traumatic. There were not storms in the subsequent years that I went and we got back to, we got to go back to all, a lot of the same villages uh, and um, orphanages that we had seen year over year. So I saw a lot of the kids actually grow up and thrive and do well So that, you know, that's always great. And, you know, I was seeing the country recover a little bit from, from that earthquake and rebuilding to the best of their capacity. And we've made really good lifelong friends. There's, I still have friends that live there that are Haitian that um, we send things to. And 
Um, they're just, Haitians are an incredibly, uh, they're just, they have so much pride. Like they don't want handouts from people. They want you to show them how to do things so that they can be independent. And they're just incredibly proud. And um, I think, you know, despite they, them needing help, we're incredibly gracious about opening up their country to so many NGOs who kind of sort of in some respects took over their country um, with regards to like helping um, and in fact brought in cholera. I mean, we were there during the cholera outbreak as well. So that there, you know, we were all just trying to not get sick at the same time and taking care of people who had cholera. So, you know, I just, I have nothing but fond memories. I think the hardest thing for me was when you come back from that is that it's, sometimes it's hard to assimilate. And I know I was listening to one of your podcasts about one of your guests who climbed Mount Everest. And I, and I really resonated when she said the same thing when she got back and she was having a hard time acclimating that I think that when you've had an experience like that, that a lot of people don't get to have, it's hard to express why you're struggling so much with just kind of getting back into your normal routine. Um, but I came back the first year at Christmas time. So I came back to all that consumerism and toys and people fighting in Walmart for things that they wanted after having just been in that environment. And it made me livid that that was what people were worried about rather than helping people who were struggling. And I had to remember that I can't get mad at someone when that's not their experience, their truth. They don't know. And I was the same way before I had that experience. So, um, you know, I think you just have to meet people where they're at and, and help yourself and not worry about everybody else. So I, yeah, I, I, I stopped going a few years ago. I got married and um, a few things changed for me, but I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping to get back in the next year or two. Cause I miss it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what incredible work that you've done going back and helping out these people who, you know, really have not a lot, but, and, and I like that you bring to that point. I remember I've, I've said this before, but a girlfriend of mine, she, um, went down and she was in Africa. She's traveled the world many times and she helped out on an orphanage as well. And she came back and she showed me this video of these kids and they had a makeshift soccer ball. There was probably like 200 little grocery bags tied together to make the ball. And there was like 20 or 30 kids playing a game of soccer with, you know, a bag really. And they were like the happiest kids. Like they, and it just goes to your point. Like you don't need a lot to be happy. It's not about like the thing, the things it's experiences being playful, you know, connecting with their friends playing this like game of soccer and yeah, what a beautiful thing that you got to go and experience, you know, these people and their culture and how they took care of you stood out Oh yeah, in the middle of a hurricane, somebody they don't, don't even know and took care of you. And then you were able to take care of them. And I mean, it goes the same way. You didn't know these people. Like you just said that these people, excuse me, stood out in the middle of a hurricane and they didn't even know you. But then if you flip it, you went across the world to this country that was in despair and you didn't know them to offer them like what you had. So like it's things like that, that, that change the world, right. You don't need to. Well, and I thank you for that. Cause I think, you know, 
for me, it was really just, I have a skill that can help. So why wouldn't I go like that initially was why I always wanted to do that kind of work was I ha- I know how I can help. I have skills as a nurse that I can, I can help improve someone's quality of life. But I think that once you, when you finally go and you do it, it's way more than that. Like it becomes so much more than that. Um, and the reason you do it is um, it's a bit selfish because honestly, it fills my bucket so much that I feel like I'm getting more out of it than I'm ever giving. Uh, but I mean, it, it, yeah, the, the reasons why I went subsequent years changed. And, and I think that the people that we, you know, that we employ while we were there, we always employ the same people because we do become like a little family and um, they are so protective of us when we're there. I mean, we have armed guards with, you know, machine guns that protect us and drive us around the country. And, but when we sit down to eat dinner every night, they're at the table with us. They're not eating at their own table. Like, and a lot of um, NGOs don't do that with people that they hire. And that's just not the way that any of us on our team would feel good about. So, you know, I think that that's part of the reason too, is that that's, it becomes very personal. You get to know the people enough that it, um, you know, you, it's, yeah, it's, I, if anyone wants to do something like that, I'd say, don't wait and do it because it's, it's a life-changing experience. It's amazing. And Mm -hmm. the kids are like, oh, my just little Haitian babies. I just, oh, I love them so much. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Okay. So let's touch on now. So you have been like this giver, this person who helps like your whole life in all of these different ways. And now you are, um, also doing some, uh, working with some companies to take care of, you know, their people. So why don't you talk to us about how you are getting into this new role? Yeah. So really quickly, I'm, I, the reason I started my business in 2017 was because I was leaving, I was, I was running a long-term care home and I had made the decision to leave long-term care sector, uh, to go work with first nations in British Columbia. And I had a group of physicians that I'd been working with that approached me and said, Oh, we wish we would have known you were leaving. We would have hired you. And I said, well, that's lovely. Um, and then, you know, I, we kind of went our separate ways and about three or four months later, I heard back from them. They said, Hey, listen, we got this, you know, grant funding and we want to develop this project where, um, someone can help basically do what you were doing at, at your long-term care home, which was re- we were trying to reduce the number of inappropriate transfers from long-term care to the acute care sector. So not sending seniors from our, from our home to the hospital unnecessarily because then they get stuck and emerge and it's never a good scene for everybody. So they said, you had the best outcomes. So can you just develop curriculum and then deliver it and just teach everybody else how to do what you were doing? It's like, yeah, I can do that. You know, my husband, who's more of an entrepreneur than me at the time said, you need to start your own business. Like you can't be mixing these two things together. So that kind of was why I started Curious Consulting in the first place. And I continued to work with them right up until the pandemic. And then we couldn't go into the homes anymore. So that parlayed us into doing a project where we took the training I was delivering in person. And now we've, we've done a video series that they can use and it can be, um, you know, evergreen. So anyone who wants it can access that training for their staff. Um, and, and what through that process, I mean, through COVID, you know, we all had a chance to sort of reflect. And, and at the time I had left working with first nations and I had taken on the 
position that um, I am still in now, which was a VP position uh, back in long-term care, because again, my heart was calling me back. COVID was happening and I was like, no, I'm going back. So uh, I, I took on this position and I had some time to reflect and I thought I don't want to be doing policy development and curriculum development for the rest of my life. If my plan is to build this business up to be something that I do for myself and it fills me up because it was always supposed to be a side gig. And then my husband started got me thinking like, well, why, why does it need to be a side gig? Why can't it be something you do full time? And then I thought, well, that's not what I want to do. And that was what I thought I would do as a like quote unquote consultant. And then I had to go back and think like, well, what is it that I want to do? I don't really know what I would want to do. And it brought me back to what started my whole nurse, like my whole career here in British Columbia. When I moved out here in 2006 from Ottawa, I took a job with a large company that uh, wanted me to run one of their long-term care homes. And I had come out for an interview that had like two phone interviews and then they flew me out for an interview. And told me everything was great. Like everything was going great in this home. I went to the home, visited, everything seemed to be fine. I accepted the position, moved all the way across country, started this job. And I was doing what I thought I was supposed to do as a new leader. Now I had had some leadership roles before this, but they were very clinical focused with very autonomous, independent nurses who were working in community. And I was really just more coordinating services. So this was very different. This was like a senior executive position. And um, I was doing all the things I was supposed to do. I was collaborating with people. I was trying to like create a fun environment and doing pizza parties and all the things. And about four months into the position, I came to work one day and our admin coordinator said, licensing is on their way. Now, licensing is, that's not an unusual thing in British Columbia for them to just do an impromptu visit. So I said, okay, I knew we had nothing to hide. And then I said, well, do you know why they're coming? And she said, she, her eyes kind of dropped. And I said, you need to tell me why they're coming. And she said, well, they're coming to investigate you. And I said, excuse me, <laughs> I thought I misheard her. She said, they're coming to investigate you because somebody is accusing you of covering up the death of a resident. And literally in that moment, I felt the blood drain from my body. And I thought, this is it. Like my, my whole career is over. Not because I thought I, because I knew I was guilty, but because I couldn't believe that someone would do this to me. And I knew it was somebody who was working in the home. So after a two day investigation that clearly showed that that was not the case, they interviewed the nurse who actually accused me of this. And she said, well, I thought that if I could get her fired, everything could go back to the way that it was. Cause I was making some changes, which needed to be made to improve care and service for everybody. And that was my first sort of awakening that I had no idea what the hell I was doing. I was ill-equipped to work in this kind of dysfunctional environment. I had been lied to, basically. I did not have support of senior leaders. I did have some people in the organization who supported me and still are like mentors to me, but I did not have the support of senior management. And I started coming to work every day having panic attacks because I didn't, I thought if people who I show up for every day are accusing me of this stuff, like, how do I come, like, how do I come as my, the best version of myself when I can't trust the people that are there? And so it really led me on this journey of saying, you have two options at this point. You can either quit and go someplace else and it's probably going to happen, or you can dig in and figure this, like, figure it out and turn it around. And so I started on this quest of trying to figure out leadership. And so, I mean, I've accumulated 
bookshelves of books of around leadership styles and attributes and the 10 best attributes that you need as a leader. And I'm not, I don't say that in that kind of voice to be um, disrespectful. I have a lot of those books and I think that they have a place. But at the end of the day, what I learned is that if you don't, if you treat people like a human being as a person, that's actually as diff, that's as complicated as it gets. Leadership is not complicated. We've made it complicated. It's an exchange of energy between two people. That's it. If I show up as an ass, I'm going to get treated as an ass. Like it's really about finding that human connection and prioritizing the importance of people before a bottom line. And that's the piece that I think organizations struggle with because it all becomes about the bottom line. And they think that it's got to be an either or. And I say it's an and. You can have both. The difference is, is that we need to be focusing on our customer, our employee experience rather than the patient or the customer experience, which is what we've always said in healthcare. And I think probably to be true in most settings is that we feel really good as an organization if we say, oh, our customers are their number one, can, like where our focus is on our customer. Well, it shouldn't be. It should be on your people. Because if your people are happy and they feel valued and they feel like you're going all in on them, just by sheer nature, your clients, your patients are going to get amazing care because they're going to feel all, they're going to feel not indebted, but they're, they're not going to want to leave that environment because they're going to feel like that they're, they're seen and they're valued. So, you know, I think this is, that kind of led me to obviously the passion that I have for this is that it was really never about being a consultant from the concept of developing policies and procedures. It was always about leadership, but I had to go back and remember that kind of traumatic time to really be able to then articulate what my business model was going to look like and my why. Wow. And I, I, we've talked about this a little bit before, but I completely believe in that. I mean, as a former teacher, if you take care of your teachers, the teachers will be able to take care of the students and the families. And it doesn't take a lot, but it takes getting curious and it takes, um, I said this in our conversation that we had before, it is finding out what your people um, receive, right? Like it's different for the different people on your team and, and what matters to them. But if you really take care of them, then they're going to be, you know, full fueled, energized, feel appreciated, all of the things. And it's just going to be like the ripple effect. Right. So absolutely. Oh, so important. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why it's such a hard concept for people to write. I think it's just, we've, you know, it's, it's been decades and decades of this sort of tear down approach and this corporate structure that we've created. And, um, you know, I hate the word soft skills because so much of what I do is in that world of, of that soft skill and, and having people realize that when you play in that space, you're actually not a weak leader, you're an extraordinary leader um, and why and explaining that. But there is still this notion that if you are um, too nice to people, then you're a weak leader and you're not going to get anything done. And that's part of the work that I do is there's a big difference between being nice and being kind like a big difference. And if you don't know the difference, then that's probably why you have the assumption that being a a kind person is the same as being nice and there it's not the same. So yeah, I'm, I'm, 
um, I'm loving kind of being in this season right now where I'm getting to play with this a little bit and see where it'll go. Oh, I'm so excited for you. So excited to follow you on your journey and see where it leads you. you. And, um, yeah. So where can everybody find you connect with you, see what you're up to? Yeah. So, um, I am on Instagram. Um, I'm still trying to like, I feel like an old person every time Instagram does something new, I'm like, I just learned how to do a reel and now it's different again. So, um, I am on Instagram and I have my link tree there, which links to everything else. So if people want to find me there, it's at, you'll probably put it in the show notes, I'm sure, yeah. but it's at curious underscore consulting and the curious is C-U-R-I-S, which is Latin for health, um, which I thought was cute when I started my business. I was like, oh, I want something different in hindsight. I'm like, that was the first mistake as a new business owner is don't ever pick something people can't spell or say or find. So um, that's where I am. But you can also just go directly to my website, which is um, curiousconsulting.ca. And that has everything and the links to all my social media. So I usually tell people just go directly to my website. Okay, perfect. And we will link that all in the show notes. Well, thank you for sharing your story. It is like just jam packed with so much love and life and I don't know, just like I said, in the beginning, like nurses are superheroes. There, there is something different about them. There is something special about them. And I think we all, if we know a nurse, um, see a nurse been cared for by a nurse, like we all get it. So thank you for like everything that you've done because the lasting effects that it has on lives that you probably won't even know about. There's probably people thinking about you right now and how you cared for them that leave a lasting impact. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for saying that. That's really kind. I, you know, it's, it's been a rough two years, even, you know, for people who are in the system now. So I just, you know, would equally like to take my hat off to everybody who's still pulling through and showing up every day because it's, it's been a rough go. And I know there's a lot of pain and trauma that people are putting away just to be able to be there for their patients and give good care. And that takes an extraordinary person to do that. So thank you for that acknowledgement. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of all things relatable. If you know someone that would relate to this episode and get value from it, please pass it along. Also, if this episode resonated with you, I would love for you to rate review and subscribe.